Would you um, turn to 1 Kings 16? And I want to just touch on a story, a few stories actually, and see how, how much of this we're going to do tonight. I just have had um, this story going through my mind for actually several days, and um, uh, I, it's, it's just beginning to really take some root in my own life. Um, how many of you know that there's no victory without a battle? And there's no mountaintop without a valley. And there's no, there's, and summer without winters called a drought. And several summers without winters called a famine. So how many of you understand that life it lives in a contrast, that we really, that God really likes adventure and that he, um, although he, there are real seasons of comfort in our life and there are other seasons that, that are less than comfortable. How many would you agree with that? And you're really leaning on the comforter and you get to know the nature of the comfort. You know, how many know the Holy Spirit's are, he's the, he's, he's, he, he's our truth. He leads us into all truth. He's our comforter. He's our guide. He's our God. He's our healer. He's all these things. And in different seasons, it seems to me that we learn, uh, different perspectives of God, if you will. And so there are times when, you know, things get uncomfortable and we learn about the comfort that the Holy Spirit who's healed us and led us into all truth and guided us in all these other dimensions, suddenly we learn that He's also the one who comforts us and counsels us and gives us wisdom. And how many of you have kind of figured that out in, in some tough times? Because I certainly have. And so um, I want to talk to you a, a little bit about um, this, this thing of prophetic processing and before I do, um, Matthew 5.43, and I've taught on this so many times, so I just want to touch on it. Jesus said this. He said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your father who's in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. So, I want you to know, I'm going to read an Old Testament story about uh, Elijah stopping the rain. And I want you to understand that I want to take some of the principles from that story. But because of the weather patterns, it would be really easy for, um, like Jesus, where he said, you know, um, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, for you to think that you forgot bread. You, you, did, you misprocess what I'm saying. Because I don't think, like I believe that we live in a new covenant, in the Old Covenant, they stopped the rain, and I'll, I'll, we'll read a scripture about that. But in the New Covenant, how many understand that God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? Thank God for the cross. You sang about it tonight. I'm not sure that we always understand. I'm, I know for, for a fact that I don't have a complete revelation of what Jesus did on the cross and how much I don't have to pay for because he paid for it for me. So I want to, but I still want to take this Old Testament story. I, I, what I don't want you to do is, is take the application and go, well, okay, uh, Elijah stopped the rain and, you know, he, he cursed the land because of this, their sin. And I'm like, yeah, that, that is the story. But we live in a new covenant where God actually makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and so um, I, I just want you to know that what you might think I'm saying, I'm not saying. So let me get all the way through this. Uh, I know it saves emails if I explain this. So um, first, first uh, Kings 16, we're just going to uh, just do the last part of first Kings 16. And uh, it's it talks about Ahab and Ahab 
is a king. Well, in fact, we'll just read it here. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebet. He married Jezebel, the daughter of somebody's king, the Simeonites, and they went to serve Baal and worship him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which is built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asher. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of Israel than all the kings who were before him. In the days of Hiel, uh, the Bethlehite built Jericho. He laid the foundations with the loss of his firstborn, and he set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. We're going to go on and talk about something else in just a minute, but let me just kind of tell you, set this the stage for what's happening here. Ahab becomes king, and as you can see in the story, he, he's, he first thing he does is he begins to call Israel back to worshiping Baal. He marries uh, the you know false prophetess Jezebel, and he becomes at that time the wickedest king in Israel's history. And at, and and the, and then in the midst of that story, it mentions that at, in the same season that this guy. Um, he begins to, he rebuilds Jericho. Now, do you remember Jericho was the first city that Joshua took and they destroyed this, this city? And when Jericho, uh, destroyed, I'm sorry, when Joshua went in and destroyed Jericho, unlike all the other cities, God said, you can't have Jericho. Jericho is a tithe to me. So you, you're, you're gonna go in and you're gonna destroy the city, but every other city I'm gonna give you, but this city you cannot have it. So I want you to destroy this city. And it's, it's, it's kind of like an offering, Old Testament offering to God. And so Joshua goes in, destroys the city, and, um, and you know the walls fall down, the whole story, you know that story. And then Joshua makes a proclamation by the word of the Lord that anyone who rebuilds this city will rebuild it at the loss of their firstborn. So here we go, years later, this is hundreds of years later, Ahab becomes king and... and this other guy's Bethlehite guy, Hiel, he starts to rebuild Jericho, and he does it at the loss of two of his sons. And I, as I, I was reading that, and it's, um, it's, it's, it's tragic what people will pay, what it sometimes costs us to build our ministries or our careers. And I wonder, you know, how many of you understand that every family should learn how to sacrifice? Every family should, uh, we should, that should have been better. Every family needs to learn how to sacrifice. And part of the struggle in our, in our home, just to be honest, like when we, when my kids were growing up, our four kids were growing up, you know, we, we struggled financially. There wasn't extra. I'm not saying they never went without, they, they always had, you know, uh, clothes without holes and shoes with no holes. And, and you know, we, there was enough food, but there wasn't extra. There wasn't, there wasn't any extra. And so if somebody, you know, if somebody needed, like if our daughters needed a, a cheerleading uniform, I mean, that was a sacrifice. We, 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 it took from something else that we needed, if that makes sense. And, and we made lots of those sacrifices. When our sons played uh, sports, they needed certain shoes, and that was a sacrifice. I mean, that's the way we live. Like, okay, we'll just cut back on something else because the boys need shoes that cost, you know, $75, and that's, that was a big sacrifice. There wasn't extra. And, um, and so our, our kids, 
grew up understanding sacrifice. And I remember one time when my two daughters, I think they may have been, uh, I don't know, maybe like uh, seven and, and nine, something like that, pretty young. And they came down during one of these seasons when, when things were really tight. And they had this jar of uh, coins, mostly pennies. And we had prayed that night at the dinner table for finances because things were really tight. And, um, and so they went upstairs and brought down this big piggy bank full of pennies and, you know, maybe nickels and quarters. And they said, we, we, we want to help. We want to help. And I think it's so cool for families to learn how to sacrifice. You know, everything in me is like, keep your pennies. And God's all, no, this is a family affair. Like something more important is happening here than the $20 that's in that, that's in that bank. Like they are participating in a miracle. And so, you know, I honestly don't remember the outcome of, of their pennies, but I remember that prophetic word that the Lord said, you need to take this. This is, this is for them. And so, you know, the, the challenge is, of course, is that the next generation, like my grandkids, have not known is financially, they've not known want. They've, they, they, they've never known a time when there wasn't extra. And we, you know, they were born into a different season in our family. And so I think that it's really important. And Kathy and I and our, actually our, our sons and daughters have talked through this issue. It's like something that's bred into me. It was bred into my grandfather, my, my parents. We all grew up uh, kind of with a farming mentality. Um, we, we struggled. My, my grandparents knew great struggle. My parents uh, knew great struggle um, uh, on lots of levels, but financially, we, we struggled. We worked hard all of our life, and we know what it is to work for something. And again, I understand grace and all that. You, you know where I'm coming from, right? I'm not talking about working for your salvation or anything. But we, we know what it is to work hard. And, and, then, um, and now we have our grandkids who basically you want to give them everything, right? Like, like, I just want to give them everything. Like, oh, you want a, you want a Mac computer? You're four? Awesome. It's like, which one you want? No, no, that's too small. Let's get you the big one, you know? Doesn't every parent, you just want to do that for your kids, right? But there's just, there's something else that they're learning. And, and so anyway, uh, so every, every family needs, I think, instilled in them. They need to learn sacrifice. Like, I believe that my grandkids need to learn sacrifice. And I, I feel like it's a core value that is so deeply inbred in the kingdom. Jesus sacrificed for us. I don't think you even understand that if you've never had some sacrifice in your life. But there's a difference between you sacrificing and you... It's, it's, there's a difference between your family understanding sacrifice, your, your family sacrificing, and your family being sacrificed. And I think there's a lot of confusion. I, I see careers and ministries and, and families that are sacrificing their children on, on, on the altar of, of significance and some on pleasure and some on different things. But it's like it's not God. When you have to sacrifice your family for the promotion... Listen, I don't care how many prophetic words you got. If you have to sacrifice your family, the promotion isn't from God. 
And I've said this before, but sometimes the Lord gives us a prophetic word because he wants to test our hearts instead of determine our destiny. And I, I don't know how many times I've uh, been with people on planes and God bless them. And I, I'm not trying to make a judgment about them, but, but I've sat next to salesmen who are got three and four kids and they're they're gone 250, 300 days a year. I'm like, how do you I just sat one next to one just last week and. He's like, yeah, I love my job. And, you know, I'm really my he's telling me about his career. And I'm like, that's exciting. Yeah. I said, you have a family. I'm expecting him to say no. And he's like, yeah, I have four kids. And I'm like, wow, how old are you? I'm thinking, well, he must be grown. And he's like, no, they're they're little. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, I didn't say anything to him. You know, he's not asking for my advice. But I, I'm like, wow, what's it costing you to have this career? What's it, what's it costing you? Is it I mean, I understand that our kids should. You don't, you don't have to be up from 24-7 to be a good mom or dad, but what's it costing you? you know, you've gone 270 days a year, and your kids are little. Wow. So I think it's important that, you know, from this, we, we realize that sometimes we're building something, and we, we're, we're totally into what we're doing without realizing what we're not doing. How many of you have figured out that you're not omnipresent? How many of you figured out that if you're doing something, it means there's something you're not doing? Now, if you're proactively not doing it, it's awesome. Like you thought through it, like I'm doing this and I know I'm not doing that. And I am good with that. Like I've thought through it. I've counted the cost and I'm like, I'm doing this and no, I'm not doing that. But what I find in my life, and maybe you're not like this, but I, I am, I get obsessed with something I'm doing and I am not even aware of what I'm not doing. Until somebody that I'm not doing it for brings it to my attention. How many of you can relate to any of this? Like, you know, like, ah, oh, we're hungry over here. We haven't seen you for like months. Oh, oh, yeah. I didn't actually plan you into my life. I figured you'd fit in somewhere. And you're not. So um, I, I think it's important that we have... Uh, Years ago, I read this book, and the, and the guy, it was a business book, actually. But the one thing I drew from this business book, he said, I made a to-do list and a not-to-do list. And he said, I proactively don't do these things, like on purpose. So when somebody comes to me and says, I don't see you doing this, he says, I plan to not do that. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, that's really brilliant. Like, when I'm doing this, what am I not doing? Whatever it is. If I'm doing ministry, what is it, what is it I'm not doing? Because... I can't be everywhere at once. And, and the other thing is, I do think that life happens in seasons. So, you know, somebody, I was just talking to a young person in another state that it, uh, the other day, and they were kind of asking for some advice. And they're like, you know, I'm really busy. And, and they're talking about their week. And I said, was this your typical week? Or they're go, they said, no, I'm, we're doing this thing. And I don't want to tell you what it is because I, I don't want to reveal any details for the person's sake. But... And I'm like, he's, he's like, this is, no, it's going to last about two months. I'm like, well, life doesn't happen. And, you know, you don't measure the balance. You don't, ba- you don't measure if your life is balanced in a week or two weeks. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Like farmers, literally Proverbs says that a, 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 only a fool sleeps in the harvest. And if you're a farmer, you know exactly what he's talking about. Like you don't sleep in, in the harvest. You pick because if you don't get the fruit off the trees, it rots. So literally, the farmers had an unbalanced life for however long it took them to get the fruit off the trees. And, you know, if you walked into the farmer's house, 
for that you know, week, two, three weeks, however long it took to get the food off the trees, you'd say, well, a farmer doesn't care about his family. But he's in a season where he's got to pick fruit while the fruit's good. But if that season turns into years, how many of you know that's not called a season? There we go. So all of that to say, you know, be careful. Like, what is it costing you to do what you do? Uh, maybe that's just should be the message tonight. Like, what is it costing you to do what you do? And if you thought about it and you're like, OK, this is what it's costing me. And this is God's called me to this. Sometimes for me, gosh, I'm being so sometimes for me, I know that God's called me to things. It's just that I do it more than he told me to. How many of you maybe are like that? Like, I, and, and I'm an extremist. So if I see I'm doing something wrong, I like, like I'm doing too much of this. My tendency is to not do it at all. Okay, I'm not going to do that at all. I'm going to do this. And then about six months down the road, my, my other not to do list changed. My not to do list changed. And my to do, you know what I'm trying to say? Like I typically run over here. It's like, okay, so I'm doing this. I'm doing it way more. Like God opened the door. I'm like, ha, oh, I'll just do this all the time. And then pretty soon, my, these people I didn't put on my not to do list, there's, uh, they need help. So I'm over here. I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. So sorry. I repent. Now I'm doing this. And then, then that's not getting done at all. I'm like, oh, so I think we need extreme doesn't work very well. That's why I married, you know, level. How many people are extreme in here? Your personality. Yeah. How many of you, you married someone that's you're extreme, but you married someone who's really level. Yeah. That's isn't that good. Like the thing is, I don't like to listen when I'm being extreme. Is another part of the problem. Um, okay, so seventeen, First Kings seventeen. What did she say? No, no, don't. Nothing I say from this pulpit shall be held against me. And verse one, chapter seventeen. Now Elisha the uh, Tishbite was of the settlers. Of Gilad, and he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be no dew nor rain these years except by my word. Um, and I just want to stop and, and make a few comments. First of all, it says that Elisha, Elijah was a settler. You know, sometimes settlers get a lot more done than pioneers because they take ownership of their land. You know, I was thinking about um, in. Um, Genesis 37, it says, Now Jacob lived in the land that his father sojourned in. How many of you understand that? If you're just passing through, you're just a visitor. I don't take much ownership of your city. Of the, you know, We were praying today for our, our city, and Eric was sharing about taking responsibility for our city. And the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Like, how big is us? How big is our, you know? And I think that it's, it's interesting that Elijah takes responsibility because he's a settler. He's taking responsibility for the land that he's settling. He's not a pioneer. He's not passing through. He's not a visitor. He's not, he's not a one-night stand. You know, there's in-house prophets and out-house prophets. You know what I'm saying? 
He's not a one-night stand outhouse prophet that's just passing through, giving some prophetic word to somebody that's not meaningful to him. He's upset because it's his nation, it's his land, this is his king, and he's like, this isn't right. And I should tell you that you'll notice that God never tells Elijah to stop the rain. Elijah gets the idea. And he gets it out of, actually from Deuteronomy and other places, but Deuteronomy, God said this, Beware that your hearts are not deceived, that you do not turn away to serve other gods and worship them. And he goes on to say, if you do that, he says, I'll shut up the heavens and there will be no rain. And so this is the old covenant. Remember, I, I read the new covenant for you. In Deuteronomy, God said, listen, if you do this, in fact, he gives a whole list. I just read one line of it. If you do these things, I'll stop the rain. And there was all kinds of other curses that went along with it. And so um, thank God we live in a new covenant. Did everybody hear that? Okay. so so Elijah doesn't. And and this is really I think this is powerful. Elijah, no, there is no place you can find in the Bible where God spoke to Elijah and said, stop the rain. Ahab is being wicked. I want the rain to stop. Elijah looks into the word of God and says, it's not supposed to be raining. This guy's this clown's look what he's doing. He's calling people to worship Baal. This this guy's messed up. And it's Elijah's idea to stop the rain. And he stops rain because he's standing on the word of God, which in his day was, of course, the old covenant. And the rain stops. And so then the Lord speaks to him. Now, verse two, the word of the Lord came to him saying, now you'll notice that's the first time the word of the Lord comes to him. He stops the rain. Then the word of the Lord comes to him and says, listen, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the book, by the brook Cherub, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink from the brook. Which I've, and I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. And, he's, and he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he lived by the brook Cherub, which is east of the Jordan. The, ra- the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. Verse 7. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now this is pretty interesting because why? Wh- where does God send him? Who sent him to the brook? Well, this is pretty simple. God sends him to the brook. Why does he need the brook? Because there's a famine. How did the famine start? Elijah starts the famine by a prophetic declaration. Are you with me? Where does he get the idea? Out of the word of God. He gives a prophetic declaration. It stops raining. And God says, go to the brook Cherub and I'm going to provide for you there. You can drink from the brook and the ravens are going to feed you. And so he goes to the brook. But guess what happens? It isn't very long before his stand actually dries up the brook. It's it's by his word. It's by Elijah's prophetic declaration that the brook that God sent him to to provide for his needs dries up. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying. Sometimes you think there's something wrong. Like, you know, we'll go on and I'll tell you some more. So, verse 8, so the Lord said to him, now go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidium, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to provide for you. Now, this is an interesting story because he leaves the brook that dried up, <coughs> that God sent him to, and he goes to this widow's house, and he said, the God said, I've commanded this widow to provide for you. There's only one problem. Well, there's actually two. The first one is, God forgot to tell the widow. 
And the second problem is when he gets there, she's got no food. So Elijah gets there and he's like, okay. And, and he says to the widow, hey, um, give me something to drink. And she has a little bit of a jar of water and she, it's kind of her last jar, sort of last little bit of water. And she gives him the, the water, which I bet tastes really good. And then he says, and give me something to eat. And she says, I, listen, all I have is a little bit of meal and some oil. And I'm going to make that for me and my son. And then we're going to die. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but has God ever sent you someplace to provide for you? That's worse off than you are. <clears throat> and then this is crazy. And then Elijah goes, well, give it to me. She's like, listen, I got to just tell you, like, I don't know why you came here. Oh, I came here because God said that he told you to provide for me. <laughs> She's got to be going like, Keith, where did that happen? I must have had a dream. I didn't get the interpretation right. Because God said, I told this widow to provide for you. But she seems to not know anything about providing for him. And she's got nothing to provide. So, so she says, you know, please, this is my last meal. We're going to eat our last meal. And Elijah said, well, give it to me. I mean, that takes a lot. <laughs> and he says to her, if you give it to me, this is what's going to happen. That jar's never going to go empty of oil. The meals, you're never going to have. Listen, you're going to have. a Listen, that jar is going to stay full of oil and that jar is going to stay full of meal until this famine's over. If you give it to me. And I'm sure she's thinking, dude, I hope this guy's right. Because <laughs> at this point, I've got one meal. And so she gives him the meal. And you know the story that they don't run out of meal and, and oil until the famine's over. <clears throat> I, I, just, I just feel like sometimes our ministry, our own ministry, sometimes we take stands against unrighteousness and, the, and your brook dries up. And you're like, I thought God sent me here. I thought God told me to come here like, I don't know what's going on. Like, man, it's all perfectly clear. I was up there on the mountain and I was meeting with God. And he told me, take this stand. Don't do that thing. And then and then here I am. And then he sends me to a brook and I'm there for two weeks and the brook dries up. Then he sends me to an old lady's house and she got no food. And then God tells me to take her food. I mean, I'm not happy, you know, and. I think sometimes we get stuck, and maybe it's just me, but you, we get stuck in complaining instead of realizing that God is trying to solve her problem and my problem. Like he looks down and she's, she's, she's at her last meal and God says, hey, it's time to dry up the brook because if I dry up the brook, not only will I provide for Elijah, but I'm going to provide for this widow and this, and this, and this son. And we, we don't even realize that we're actually, we're actually partners in destiny with somebody and we're complaining instead of, re, instead of reproducing oil. Do you know what I'm saying? We get there and we're, we're in such a bad state of like, oh, book dried up, you know. Here I am taking a stand for God. It's, I mean, where he is in the 18th chapter, he tells God, I want to die. I'm the only prophet alive. I mean, you know, Elijah's got the I feel sorry for myself kind of spirit going on most of the time. He just has a real problem with relationships anyway. So he's, you know, he's kind of alone and he's and, and, and I can imagine that, you know, most of us in that situation, you take a stand against this wicked king and 
you know, it, the rain stops and you're like, well, that's good. And then pretty soon the rain stops and it starts costing you. And God's all take care of you. Go to the brook and you're at the brook. And that's good for you. are like, ah, oh, yeah, did the right thing. And then the brook dries up. And I bet you by the time he gets to the widow's house, I mean, if it was me, I'd be pretty like, dude, I'm getting tired of this ministry stuff. I'm taking I'm getting me a job in this mechanic someplace. <laughs> and uh, and I, I just think that some of us are in this place where we have to realize that if we will look with other eyes, God's found a way to provide for you. Like I look around, I don't see it anywhere. It's like I, I don't think he I don't think the widow looked like somebody who had food for him. No, this isn't deep. I get that. But if you're in trouble, this is profound. Sometimes you're looking in the wrong place for provision. You're looking for people who have it instead of people who don't. And God's saying, listen, I'm going to give it to you through people who don't have it because I'm going to give to them so they can give to you and I'm going to provide for you both. And we're looking, we're looking for somebody who's got extra and God goes, I'm going to give you, I'm going to put you with someone who's got nothing and because of the blessing on your life, I'm going to bless them. And God, and God has this way of working things out. But I, I, w- I want to say this, that God, um, God, he, uh, there's something about taking a righteous stand, not because God told you to, but because you know it's right. Now, I'm not talking about prophesying, uh, changing weather, earthquakes. I have preached on it so many times. I don't know how someone could even take it that way, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking a stand in your personal life for righteousness. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, Proverbs says, you swear to your own hurt and you do not change. I'm talking about being an integrous person. I'm talking about not doing something that's wrong to solve, get your problem solved. I'm talking about, you, you know, um, I was talking, I was sharing, in um, uh, more revolution conference I did in Nashville. And I said, you know, when I, if I'm broke, I'm like, you know, when we were really broke and we'd go, you know, to the bank to make a deposit or whatever, I don't go, I'm not in the bank thinking, you know, I could rob this bank. Get me a gun. It looks like they got extra. They got some laying around. I got nothing. I mean, I don't think like that. Some of you, some of you are like, well, praise God for you. <laughs> I, I don't I don't go to the bank and think I might rob this bank. They got money. But and, and in other words, even though I have a need, I'm not going to violate my core values to get my need met. And I was talking to the young people about se- their sexuality. It's the same way with my sexuality. Right. I'm not, I, I'm, I may have a, a, I have a sex drive. But I'm not going to violate my core values to get my need met. I'm not going to sexualize somebody. I'm not going to go to the bank and steal from the bank because I have a need. It's, it's, important, that our, it's important that we have values that we're willing to die for. Because until you have something to die for, you really have nothing to live for. I'm really concerned that in our nation, that our nation is... A, a nation that is, is growing to not know sacrifice. I'm cons- I, I love this nation, by the way. I'm not prophesying any doom. I'm just saying my, this, this nation, is this next generation that's coming up is, feels very entitled. 
And I'm like, it's like government takes care of me. People take care of me. I'm like, I think that we have to understand. We were talking to some folks at the wedding and uh, they were talking about what, what it was like to live in the Depression. And then well, the Second World War and the Depression and all these different things that they had been through and, and how they, they self-rationed food because the people, the, the men and women who were in the armed forces didn't have enough. And so they, they self-rationed. Like, they didn't take what they, everything they wanted so that there was enough food for the men on the front lines to actually eat. And, and was talking about that they, that they had to ration tires and, and, and gasoline and food. And these, these old men were, were talking about what it was like. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, they're talking about the stock market. Like, oh, this is the worst in history. And I'm like, man, these guys, you just need to listen to these old guys. They were around when, you know, when the wars were happening and when the depression happened. And it's like, you, 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 you listen to these guys, you're like, dude, your worst day isn't anything like the days they've been through. And so, and what I'm getting at is this, is that our forefathers understood what it was like to fight for virtues, for values. They understood, listen, you know, um, those of you who aren't Americans, God bless you. We, we love our country. We hope you love yours. And, and I don't know anything about world history. I barely know anything about American history, to be honest. But I know this. That we, that our forefathers instilled in us as Americans the, the, the desire and the passion to fight for virtues. And I'm not saying that all of our forefathers were perfect or that our virtues that we're fighting for are always perfect. I'm saying that it's in our DNA to fight for virtues, to fight for values. Like, we'll beat a country and give the land back. Yeah, here, we, we beat the Japanese. And, and then we're like, oh, you can have your land back. And here, we'll pay to rebuild your country. We beat the Iraqis who, you know, we think are trying to kill us. And whether you agree with that or not isn't my point. But after we beat them, we're like, here's your country back. And here's billions of dollars to rebuild your land. And, and it's like, I think other nations, and I, I'm, I don't know about your nation. I'm, try, I'm not trying to be in any way dishonor other nations. But I go some places and, and people are like, Americans are trying to take over the world. And we're like, I'm like, no, you don't understand Americans. We're not interested in taking anybody's land. We just want to, we just want them to honor the God-given virtues that we believe that were, that, that are, that are, that God, I can't forget how you put it this morning was so good. Memorized it, I guess. (laughs) That our creator endowed, right? And we just, we believe that. And even atheists in America, like, they don't believe in God. They don't like that line, but they're totally fight for virtues. And then I think that when you don't understand sacrifice, you don't understand that, you know, 630,000 people died for freedom of African-American people in our country. I mean, 630,000. That's crazy. And you start to hear these numbers of people who went to war to protect your rights, just for your rights. They didn't go to war so they could get some piece of land or get control of more people. They fought for virtue. I don't even know if you know what I'm trying to say. I am so concerned that we're losing a sense of, virt- of being virtuous. And I'm not even talking about what the virtue is right now. I understand that there's 
difference in you know what you think a virtue is and what I'm just talking about the idea that we would fight for them. For a virtue that we believe is, you know, endowed by our Creator. And so, you know, in other countries, I think they, we have our problems. God bless America. We have our problems and we have our sins and we have our, our, our national sins and, and, you know, we're exporting some of our national sins to other places. All that, we stand guilty. But, but I think they were also misunderstood in that we, it's in our DNA to be virtuous. I'm not saying we're virtuous. I've said it's in our DNA to be virtuous. It's in our DNA to be virtuous. And so when we see someone being mistreated, we're like, that ain't right. We should do something about that. Other countries are like, live and let live. <laughs> what? How is that? Listen, that's in Africa. The people want to genocide one another. How's that your business? We're like, well, it ought to be our business. Listen, they shouldn't be doing that. We're like, yeah, other countries are like, yeah, they shouldn't be doing that. But that's not our business. We live on another continent. It's not affecting us. And we just don't think like that. Because, because I think because of what God put in our land, in our DNA. And I think it's ingrained in you, whether you love God or you don't know God or you hate God, there's something ingrained in us. And as a Christian, let's leave America aside. As a Christian, this should totally be ingrained in you. It should be totally ingrained in you that, that honor's worth fighting for, that freedom's worth fighting for, that loyalty's worth fighting for, that you, you know, loyalty towards God is worth fighting for. I remember several years ago, we had an auto parts store. We had three of them, actually. And um, one day we were really busy, so I was working the counter, and our largest customer came up and he was uh, asking for uh, some parts for a truck on a purchase order. And he was uh, it was a corporate account. I don't want to tell you anything about it, who it was, but um, it was very large. It was very many thousands of dollars a month. And so uh, it's in Weaverville. So I, I'm there and, and I'm waiting on him. And he's giving me, hey, I got a 1994 you know, pickup with da-da-da. And I need all this brake stuff. So I'm looking it all up and all that. And I get it all all the parts pulled, and I'm like, okay, so what, which purchase order do you want to put it on? And he's like, put it on purchase order, da-da-da. So I go pull the purchase order, and it's a tractor. It's not a, even a truck. It's not, not, not only is it not a Ford truck, it's a tractor. And I go, um, hey, there's... And then I look on this tractor purchase order, and there's like months of different work orders. So I say to the guy, and I'll call him Henry, his name's not Henry. I say to Henry... Uh, Henry, I think there's a mistake because you gave me this PO number. This PO number is actually a tractor. Like none of these parts are going to fit that. And he says, oh, yeah, well, just just put it on there. Just go ahead and put it on there and, and I'll get the right PO later. I'm like, OK. So I put it on the PO and, and I start, I'm in my office and I'm starting to think like, you know, there's a lot like normally a PO is like it closes out every week or at least every month. And this one looks like it's been running for a long time. So I start pulling the POs and looking up the parts that have been given to this tractor. And there's like, there's like 20 different trucks all charged off of this. And they're all different brands. And I'm like, this is really, something's not right. This is not a mistake. So the next time he comes in, I say, hey, Henry, come, come back here and talk to me. What, what is this? And I'm getting to know Henry because I've done business with him for a lot of years. And I know that all of these different trucks that Henry has a little business going on the side where he 
after he gets done with his regular job that he does stuff on the side. And I figured out and, I, and I'm thinking, I think that Henry is charging the company for his parts. So he basically gets the parts for free. And so I say to him, I don't accuse him of that. I just say, hey, what's going on? And he's like, oh, well, and I'm like, um, Henry, let me just put it to you straight. Uh, uh, maybe I'm stupid, but it looks to me like you are charging parts for your own vehicles off to this company and you're getting them for free. Is that what you're doing? And he said, instead of saying yes or no, he says, your competitor does it. I said, I didn't ask you. That's not the question I'm asking you. And he said, we've been friends for years. I said, that's not what I'm asking you either. I'm not talking about our friendship. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making accusations. I'm asking you if that's what you're doing. Because, listen, this is what I'll do. If you want the parts, I will give them to you for my cost. But I can't, give them, I can't charge them off to someone else because that's actually... Not only is it illegal, but it's immoral. And he said, well, if you don't do that, I'll take all my business to your competitor. And I'm thinking, that's my largest customer. Like, I probably have at least one man, full-time guy hired because of that account. And I only have five guys. And I'm sitting there, and I know what the right answer is. You know what the right answer is, too? Well, this is not that easy when you're talking about feeding your family. When you're already, things are already tight. And I said to him, you know, um, you need to do whatever you need to do, but I need to be able to sleep at night. And as far as I'm concerned, I can't sleep doing, I'm not going to participate in your dishonesty. You're not going to pull me into it, and you're not going to pull my men into it. So if the other store will do that, then, you know, then that's up to them. But I want to tell you that this is wrong, and we're not participating in it. And, um, and we didn't, and it cost us an account. The rest of those years, we'd use this once in a while when they didn't have it part, but we lost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And, you know, you want to say, well, God, you know, provided someplace else. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, uh, we never did re- re- recover the account anywhere as close to that size. And, and, I, and I think there are times when... You don't recover something that it's right. I don't know if you're hearing me. Sometimes we're like, God, I'll, get, I'll do this right thing if I know you're going to provide. And God goes, I'm not going to. What are you going to do now? And God goes, are you a prostitute? Are you for sale? And I'm like, uh, no. Okay, I'm not giving you the money back. I just want you to not do this. You're just going to live on less. There's something to, it, it, it's right for our virtues to cost us. It's right to be at the, at, the, at the brook and it dries up because you took a stand for righteousness. It's right, it's right. It's, it's right to, that, that you have to eat less because you wouldn't take that job where your boss wants you to be dishonest. It's right. I'm telling you, the Lord's calling us back to a place of innocence. And he's given us a huge platform, bigger than I know. Talking to Bill, and I've been with Danny forever, and bigger than we ever imagined. But I'm telling you, the bigger the platform, the higher the fall. And these virtues, 
I, I got I don't know how you do this because I understand that we got here completely by God's grace. That's so ingrained in me. If you knew me very well and the, the team that does know me, you know I, there's nothing in me that thinks I got here by me. But there is something about co-laboring. There is something about decisions that that, that I've watched Bill make that I'm like, wow. I've watched him give money when their family had nothing. I've watched people live in his house with them when they had a little, I don't know, 900 square foot house, maybe 1,000 square foot house, and have a family living with them in there. And he's pastoring the church, and like he's got no privacy whatsoever. I'm like, I've watched him make those decisions, and I've watched him have opportunities to pastor large churches when our, our, you know, he had a little flock of 200, and, and see him say, no, this, this is the flock I'm called to. I'm, I'm planning on being here forever. And, um, you know, the first time Bethel actually was in need of a pastor, which was uh, two pastors before Bill came here, they sent Bill a letter and asked Bill to come. And, and Bill sent them a letter back and said, as far as I'm concerned, I'm pastoring Mountain Chapel for the rest of my life. I'm, this is where I'm called. I mean, he's not looking for a promotion. And to me, I look at that and I'm like, that's why God promoted him. I understand it's by grace, but our choice has to mean something. That, that, the, that the man keeps his virtues when it costs him. And he's literally like, I'll stay here on this meager wage and in this small place because God put me here. If I'm supposed to be by the brook, I'll stay by the brook. If it dries up, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll figure it out. God's going to figure it out some way. But I, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to make it rain now. Because I'm out of water. So, are you are you with me? I think it's uh, interesting. Oh, how are we doing? I think it's interesting that uh, sometimes uh, it's interesting the way we solve problems, like. Sometimes we don't really understand what's really wrong. So in this case, and again, Old Covenant, so take that, keep that in mind, but the point here is that he's, the brook is dry, he's out of water because he gave a prophetic word. But he gave a prophetic word because he didn't like what was happening in his country. In other words, what I'm getting at is the real problem wasn't no rain. The real problem was a sin-infested king who was leading people back to idols. And in our day, I often think that Christians are, and politicians are really happy with a, with a symptomatic cure. Like, ah, oh, we got a water tanker now. We cure the problem. We, we bring in water and we, we put it in the brook. But we don't really need it to rain like we figured a way around it. I'm like, no, no, that listen, you haven't cured anything because the real problem is a heart issue. I'll trace it back to a heart issue like, oh, oh, let's blame the prophet. The prophet's the problem. Like, no, no, the prophet's not the problem in this story. The prophet is actually trying to solve the problem. The problem's in the heart of the king. How many of you are kings and priests in this room? Sometimes the, our problems 
Somebody once said, if you need money, don't ask for money. Ask why you need money. Now listen, I believe in asking for money, but I do believe in first asking why you need money. Because God has a way of drying up our well to get our attention. Especially if we are divided between mammon and God. So, is it tense in here? Feels tense up here. Sometimes, sometimes God has a way, like, you know, if you, if you, it's, it's fine when you own things, but when they start to own you, it's amazing how God can, like, take away your things. Not because He wants to take away your things, but just because He doesn't want you to have idols. And sometimes when you need money, sometimes when I need money, sometimes I need to stop and ask why I need money. I mean, I'm not saying don't ask for the money, but ask why I need money, because it, because I may get the money because I asked and actually not solve my problem. Because my real problem may be that God's trying to get my attention because there's something rooted in this guy that isn't healthy. And God goes, okay, I'll dry up the brook and I'll give him no widow to go to just for a little bit to see what he does. And I'm praying for money and God's praying for my heart. God's like grieving over my heart. Listen, when things get really tight in our lives... I'm, I'm not just talking about financially, but it's so much easier to demonstrate. When things get really tight in our life, it really is the time that it tests our character. I can tell you, like, we went through such tight times financially. You know, maybe many of you have been in these places where suppliers are calling us. We're calling suppliers. They're calling us, you know, every day. We went through the last couple years of our business. Suppliers are calling us every day. Listen, um, you know, you owe us for two months ago. Are you going to pay us? Yeah, we're going to pay you. Oh, the, the temptation is to say the check's in the mail. Oh, the check's in the mail. It's like you do that a couple of times, and you, you know what? You may, have got, you may get your parts because they say, hey, we're going to hold your parts until we get the check. Oh, we put the check in the mail yesterday. Okay, we'll send you the, we'll send you the parts. But guess what happens? You do that a couple of times, and pretty soon they figure out that you're willing to lie to get your parts. I don't know if you're understanding what I'm saying. It's really tests your character when it costs you to tell the truth. It really tests your character when it costs you to not do that thing. And I, I wish I could say I've, that I succeeded every time. But I do know this, as far as I can remember, as far as I know, and I think my conscience is clear, every single time that I failed, I had to go back, call a supplier and said, I didn't tell you the truth. I remember doing that twice in my recollection. It may have been more than that in 20 years. But it's not fun when you're laying in bed at night and God's like, you know what? You want my blessing? You will call out supplier tomorrow and you will tell him you did not put that check in the mail until after he called. I'm like, uh, he's going to know I'm lying. He knows you're lying anyway. He's looking at the postmark on there and he knows that you weren't honest. And so you're going to call and tell him. And, you know, and I, and I know I did that twice and it wasn't fun. You know what happens when you hold yourself to bring about fruit of repentance? It's the next time you think about lying, you think, ah, I'm going to have to do that thing because God's going to drive me crazy. <laughs> I, I, I think I'd rather just tell him up front, like, hey, I'm broke. <laughs> yeah, buddy, can you send me the parts anyway? No, you can't. Okay, how about COD? Uh, okay, uh, I'll see if I can, you know. Go catch a fish and golden coin or something. <laughs> so, um, okay. Um, 
I, I think we were belaboring the point. We're on page one. I got three pages. But you don't, you, you don't want, no, don't encourage me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from long preaching, which I do get accused of, and it's totally true. Um, I, think, I think that we've said what we were supposed to say tonight. I think God really, really wants virtuous people. And I think that we're coming into a promotion. And always before a promotion is a government test. And I really feel like the test isn't at all like bad or evil. Sometimes the test is good. Like sometimes God goes, I'm going to give you the tree of knowledge of good and evil right here and the tree of life. Now, knowledge of good and evil, it doesn't say anything about what the fruit looked like on the, on the tree of life. But it said... When Eve looked at the tree that they weren't supposed to eat, it says that the fruit looked like it was good for food. I'm not sure. I think that the other tree was like a fig tree. I mean, you know, you got to work to like figs. It's like tree of life's got fig trees. I mean, got figs on it. In the tree of knowledge of good and evil has got like cherries. It's probably a cherry tree. Or it'd be a strawberry tree, but they didn't have strawberry trees. You know, I still don't. Yeah, you don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like it looked like is good fruit, and sometimes God tests us, and the test isn't. Sometimes you know, I I think I do good at this part, and probably most of us do. Like I think I do good when the choice is good or bad. I think I mostly, you know, I've had a few bad days, so I'll be careful. But I think if the choice is good or bad, I usually get that one right. It's when it's good or God. That, that one's got me several times. Where I've taken good instead of God. Because God sometimes looks like figs. Do you know what I mean? I don't like figs, if you figure that out. They flow through me like a mighty rushing wind. Seriously, I do not like figs. And sometimes the good and God choice, like the God choice looks like figs. Do you know, does it, does it to you? Like the good choice looks really good. And the God choice doesn't look bad. It just doesn't look, I mean, it looks edible, but not delicious. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It looks like Ezekiel where he eats the book and it's sweet in his mouth and bitter to his stomach. It looks like that's like, this is going to be like a sweet and sour kind of thing. You know, and I'm like, you know, the other tree, it doesn't look like it's got no sour at all. And I, and I think that there's, uh, there's just times in our life when the test isn't good or bad. I think as you grow in God, the tests are good or God. And those tests... You know, I don't believe that God gives us a test that he doesn't actually give us the answer to. But if you're anything like me, you can talk yourself out of the God answer if the other answer is good. How many of you know what I'm talking about at all? Like, I can't talk myself out of the God answer if the 
other, the other answer is bad, right? If the other choice is bad. Like I, cause I know that if I do this, I don't sleep at night. I have a really strong conscience. Like I, except for about speeding, but, <laughs> I know, sorry, I'm working on it. No, I'm not. I'm not working on it. I'm not working on it. So, so, but normally if it's bad or good, or bad or God, bad or God, I usually can get that right. But if it's good or God, wow, I can talk myself out of the God answer because this answer isn't bad. And yet in the end, it is. And the figs, it hid. I don't know. So, why don't you stand? (laughs) Kathy, come on up here. I'm going to let Kathy close this to bring some balance (laughs) to this message. She's the fig. No. It's God. I meant God. The woman of my dreams. You're backpedaling, honey. No, no. I didn't mean that the way it sounded. Strawberry. Thanks, Sherry, for the help. You know, it was really interesting. Um... Tonight during worship, the Lord was speaking to me, and, and I just began writing a whole bunch of things down on, on paper. And then Chris started sharing, and I leaned over to Tom, and I said, listen to what I wrote down tonight. The first one with an asterisk, God is in the details. Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. So many of the quotes that Chris made tonight were the same things that the Lord was showing to me in worship. And, you know, we've all been given opportunities to do things. And like Chris said, there's a defining point there between good and bad, which is really easy. But then there's others between good and God that are a little bit harder and each of us get faced with those kind of with those kind of things and the Lord is showing me about the I'm in the details and you know Chris always accuses of me of being too detailed and I'm like you know what God is in the details he likes them so if you are a detailed person you know what you and God are just like that He cares about the little things because you're one of those little things that he spent so much time in perfecting. And, you know, through those details, there's that process. And we each have been put through that process, that process of our life. But in that process, we can discover our purpose. And once we we discover our purpose, then it's like, that cycle begins again. Then we go through that refining process again. And I know Chris, Chris has a wood shop and he loves working 
with his hands in the wood. And I know there's times where we've, we've, we've had this like raw piece of wood and we'll put it through the planer and then you'll sand it and you'll sand it and it looks like, oh wow, this thing is really smooth. And you'll feel and it's like, yeah, it's perfect. <clears throat> and Chris will say, it's not ready yet. I'm like, what do you mean it's not ready yet? He goes, we're going to put this solution on top of it. And when we put the solution on top of the wood and you leave it, all of a sudden the grain raises and it's like, oh, I didn't see that before. He's like, yeah, we're going to do the process again. And so that we sand it and sand it and sand it. And the grain goes down and you put something on top of it. And all of a sudden the grain raises again. It's like, there it is again. I didn't see that. And then we sand it down until pretty soon it's done with that process. And what's left is just what God imagined in us. You know, he saw what was inside of you and he set it free. But it wasn't until that process was complete. Each one of us are in a process. And you know what? A lot of times we think of that as a negative thing. But, you know, I've been through a lot of process. And you've heard our story before. And if it wasn't for that process, we wouldn't be able to do the things that we're doing now. We wouldn't be able to stand on that foundation. And I am I am, I'm so thankful for what God has putting each of us through because he says he'll never leave us and he never forsakes us. And so if tonight you feel like, you know what, I'm one that's been in that process and I feel like I've been sanding, I've been sanded for like the third or fourth time and I don't know if I can take another sanding, I just want you to raise your hand because I want to pray over you and I want to say, you know what, the final sanding is right there. It's right there. It's right there. And you don't want to stop short from what God is doing in your life. So, Lord, I just, I just pray, Father, for every person, Lord, Father, that has their hand up tonight. God, that you would just finish that refining process inside of each one of us, God. Lord, we don't want to stop short of the prize. We don't want to, we don't want to stop your hand from completing what you started in us. Lord, we, we're in this to the finish. We're in this to the finish, God. And Lord, I just pray for strength and endurance. Lord, I pray for eyes to see what you're doing. And Father, that the enemy would not have his handiwork in any part of this process. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in each person. I thank you, Father, for the outcome. And the outcome is beautiful. Thank you, God, for the beauty that you've created and released in each one of us. Amen.